John chapter 9. Would you turn over there with me? John chapter 9. At the end of John chapter 8, something interesting happens. We spent several weeks in John chapter 8. It is a very interesting chapter. It is a chapter where some truly profound and beautiful truths are explained to us. But it's also a chapter that presents some major challenges. And one of the challenges that, that comes through in this chapter is this. It's what Jesus says about the spiritual condition of the Jewish people that he's addressing in that context. He accuses them of having the intent of murdering him. That they're killers in their hearts. And that's a big accusation to throw against a group of people. We see in John chapter 8 and verse 44, he says, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. We read accusations like that, and it takes us aback a little bit. How could Jesus say something so harsh to a group of people? And yet, when you get to the very end of the chapter, as Jesus stands in front of them and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What is their reaction? This is the last verse of John chapter 8. It says, at this, they picked up stones to stone him. And so Jesus was right all along. They did have murderous intentions stored up in their hearts. And so that leaves us in, in kind of a, a difficult position at the end of this chapter. Yes, there's some encouraging things here, but there's also a little bit of discouragement in this chapter, in this, how can a group of people like the Israelites, a group of people who knew God, a group of people who enjoyed a covenant relationship with God, a group of people who had scripture available to them to know and understand the will of God, a group of people who were eagerly anticipating the arrival of the Messiah, how can a group of people like that be so spiritually bankrupt and so spiritually blind? And if that's their condition, then what hope is there for the rest of us? If God's people are so spiritually blind that they can't even recognize the I am when he stands in front of them, then what hope is there for any of us? What can God do with a group of people that are that spiritually blind? And this is where John's brilliance as a storyteller really comes to light. Because as we transition into the next chapter, he answers that question. And he takes what could be some discouragement and he turns it into great hope. Because this is what happens next. In John chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, we read this. As he went along, this is Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. And so they're asking a question just reflecting what the common thinking was at the time. That if someone suffers from a physical ailment of any kind, it must be the result of some sin, either in their parents' life or in their life. And Jesus answers that question with this. He says, neither. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. What you're seeing in this man, the fact that he was born blind, is not a result of his sin. God is, has something beautiful in mind here. He says, this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, this wasn't about what this man or his parents had done in the past. This is not divine punishment for some sin previously committed. If that's the way God operated, then all of us would be walking around blind, wouldn't we? 
He says, that's not what's going on here. But this was about what God was going to do. God is about to do something. He's about to use the opportunity that presents itself through this man's condition to show just what God can do. And that's exactly what we're going to see unfold. So he goes on in verses 4 and 5. He says, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And that's just a repeat of what he already said in the previous chapter, the second of the great I am statements. I am the light of the world. So as long as it's day, we have to be doing the work that God sent me to do. We've already talked about this, but Jesus is hyper-focused on mission. He has a job to do. He has work to do. And now he's invited his disciples to be co-participants in that work alongside him. As long as it is daytime, we've got work to do because night is coming. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And I've got a question as you think about what it was that Jesus was trying to get across here. What is daytime for? What is daytime for exactly? Well, if you put yourself in the mindset of an ancient people, daytime is for one thing. It's for working. It's when you get work done. Because once the sun goes down, you can't get work done the way that you could while the sun was up. Now, we, we don't think about that because in our modern setting, we're so spoiled by the abundance of artificial light that it seems like we can do anything we want at night. It doesn't really matter what time of day you accomplish certain things because we can just turn the lights on and get them done. I can remember years ago when we were still in Wisconsin, a very good friend of mine and I decided that we wanted to try our hand at an all-night mountain bike race. So it was a 12-hour race. It started when sun went down and ended when sun came up in the morning. And there were two of us. It was a two-man team, so we kind of did laps and took turns. And this particular race was in a mountain bike course that was very heavily wooded. And so the second the sun went down, you don't even get ambient light from, like, the stars and the moon or the town around you. It's just dark. Well, we had invested in, at the time, some really state-of-the-art lighting that attached to your handlebars, right? So we could see and do this race at night. And I'll be honest, it was a lot of fun, but mountain biking at night is nothing like mountain biking in the daytime. I think I crashed, if I remember right, 13 times during that race. Because even though I had really good lights, the problem with lights on a mountain bike in the woods is the lights only point where the handlebars are pointed. Well, if you're coming up on a sharp turn, you need to see what's here, but your bike is still pointed this way, right? And so even though the light worked well, it wasn't the same as daylight. I could only see where that narrow beam was focused, and so, man, I crashed a ton, all right? But one of my proudest moments, we got third place out of three teams. We did really, really good. <laughs> but we learned something valuable, which is mountain biking at night, although it can be done is not as efficient as mountain biking during the day. Even though you can do some things at night, doesn't mean you should be doing them at night. There are things that are just better done during the daytime. The daytime is for accomplishing work. And that's what Jesus is saying. I am the light of the world. I've, I've come here to illuminate all of this. We've got time to be at work now. I'm not going to physically be here forever. And once night comes, we won't be able to accomplish the work we can do now while I am here, while it is light. 
And so what he's telling the disciples, what he's setting them up for, is that don't be thinking about this as some kind of divine punishment. God isn't trying to illustrate to you how sinful this man is because of his blindness. God is going to use this as an opportunity to show his work through me. And so that's exactly what we're going to see unfold. After saying this, he does something very surprising. It's not the healing that's surprising. I think we're all seeing that coming. It's how he goes about it. So this is what happens. After saying this, he spit on the ground and he made some mud with his saliva. And he put it on the man's eyes. That's a strange thing to do, isn't it? If if you're wondering, well, there must be some cultural context for this. Well, not that I know about. If you went to the eye doctor and you said, doctor, I'm having trouble with my eyes, and he spit and made mud and put it on your eyes, would you be happy with that? No. This is a strange way to go about healing, but this is exactly what he does. And then he gave him further instruction. Go, he told him, and wash in the pool of Siloam, one of the many pools in Jerusalem. He says this word means sent. The word Siloam means sent. So he spits in the ground, makes mud, puts it on the guy's eyes, and then goes and tells him to wash in this pool called Siloam. And I think this raises several questions. First of all, let's think about the instructions he gave him to go wash in the pool called Siloam. I think what this does is it points us backwards and it points forwards. And I want to talk about two of the things that come to mind as we think about this instruction to go and wash. The first is a story found in 2 Kings chapter 5. Would you turn over there with me? I'm sure some of you are very familiar with the story. Some of you maybe never heard this before. I want to share it with you briefly this morning. In 2 Kings chapter 5, we read about a man named Naaman, and something very similar happens to him. He's in need of healing, and there's an instruction to go and wash. And I just want you to see the parallels here between what Jesus is doing in John chapter 9 and what happens here in 2 Kings chapter 5. So I'm going to read 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 19. Now Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram, He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. He had some kind of debilitating skin condition. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So in his household, employed in his services, this young Israelite girl who'd been taken captive, she sees the condition of her master and she's telling his wife, you got to go find the prophet in Samaria because he can cure you. So Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. This is a pile of precious metal. He's willing to pay dearly for this if he can find some kind of healing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him, of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes. He's not excited about this letter. There was a a tumultuous relationship between these two nations. And the king of Israel responds, am I God 
Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. So the king thinks this is all a setup. What are you talking about? I don't have the ability to cure this man of leprosy. I don't care how much gold he brings me. What am I supposed to do? And so he's very worried about it. But in verse 8 it says, When Elisha, the man of God, Elisha serving as a prophet at the time, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him and said to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. Simple instruction. Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and you'll be healed. But Naaman, verse 11, went away angry. He doesn't like that response. And this is why he said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of the leprosy. So he's got this grandiose vision of what this encounter with the prophet was going to be like. First of all, he's insulted that the prophet didn't show up in person. He just sent a messenger. And secondly, the instructions aren't what he had in mind. He wanted him to wave his hand and do some kind of magic trick right there on the spot and show him this power. And instead he just gets, what? Go wash in the Jordan seven times. And so he's not happy about this. So, verse 12, Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and he went off. In a rage. You know, on top of it is, why do I need these lousy, stinking waters of Israel to do this? I've got water at home. Why couldn't I do it there? But fortunately for Naaman, what happens when you get really mad? You're not thinking clearly, right? You're unable to really think critically when you're in a rage. But fortunately for him, some of his servants were more level-headed, and this is their response. So Naaman's servants went to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? Are you mad because it wasn't a big deal? Instead, it's an easy path to cleansing, and that's what's made you upset. So he went down, he listens to him, and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and sure enough, just as he said, his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God, and he stood before him, and he said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as God lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing, when my master enters the temple of Rimon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow down there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. He's so moved by what happens that he's recognizing there is no God in the world except for the God of Israel. And when he tries to give him a gift and the prophet refuses, he said, okay, instead, let me take back a pile of dirt. And that seems like an odd request until you understand what he's doing. He's going to go back to where he's from 
And he's going to make an earthen altar so that he can worship the God of Israel on Israelite soil, even though he's in a foreign territory. We don't think about this very much, but at the time, divine geography was a big deal to these people. God had a chosen people, but he had a chosen land as well. And he wanted the dirt from that land so he could worship the God that owned that dirt in a foreign place. It's a profound statement of faith. And he just tells the prophet, forgive me, because I'm going to go back and I've got a job to do. And I have to go in the temple of this foreign deity, but just know that I'm not worshiping him like my master is. So it's a great story, but the parallel here is the instruction about washing, right? What is the deal with the washing? Why is it relevant? Could the prophet have just said, yes, I'll meet you, I'll lay hands on you and heal you? Or could the prophet even have said, you don't need to come any closer, I'll, I'll heal you from a distance? All of these things were possibilities, but that's not what the prophet did. The prophet said, go and dip seven times in the Jordan River. Naaman's frustrated because he's got water at home. Was it the Jordan River that made this miracle possible? Was there some magic thing existing in the Jordan River and it was the water itself that was doing the healing? No. It wasn't even the prophet that was doing the healing. Where did the power for the healing come from? From God and from God alone. But he's asking Naaman to be a participant in this healing process. He's asking for an act of trust. Do you trust in the power of God enough that you'll do whatever I ask you to do? So it points backwards towards that story, but I think it also points ahead to baptism. And I want you to turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22. In Acts chapter 9, we read about Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus. And that's the first time we find an account of it is in Acts chapter 9. But in Acts chapter 22, Paul is speaking to a crowd and he's giving a defense of himself and he's recounting that same event. But he adds a detail in Acts chapter 22 that isn't recorded for us in Acts chapter 9. And so I want to read it from this setting. So in Acts chapter 22, starting in verse 1, in Aramaic, Paul began speaking, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia and brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of the way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus, and I went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand in Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. Paul's unable to see. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. And he stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, 
The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. This is the, the most important moment in Paul's life is this moment on the road to Damascus where he is blinded by the brilliance of the light of the appearing of the living Savior who is accusing him of persecuting him. And now that Paul's found this man that Jesus sent him to, this is his instruction of verse 16. He says, And now why are you waiting? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. If Naaman had gone to the Jordan River apart from the instruction of the prophet and just randomly dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, would he have been healed of his leprosy? No. Why was he healed then? Because he had responded in obedience to the instruction given to him. If Paul, of his own, had just decided to scrub his sins away in a bath one day, would that have accomplished salvation? No. So why is this any different? Because he's responding to the instruction given to him out of obedience. Think about 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, when Paul's framing baptism uh, with a backdrop of the way God saved Noah and his family through the flood. And he says, corresponding to this, baptism now saves you. We love that passage in Churches of Christ, but I think we get a little carried away sometimes because we end up making it mean exactly what it doesn't mean. It is not the water of baptism that saves you. What is the difference between baptism and a bath? If I wake up one day and I'm overwhelmed by my own sinfulness and I'm distraught because of the grief that I have over this and guilt and I just, I, I've got to cleanse myself and I go to Walmart and I buy the best soap they have and I scrub for an hour in the bathtub, have I washed any sin away? No. So what's the difference between baptism and a bath? The effective working power of God through baptism. Baptism now saves you, Peter says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but what? An appeal to God for a clean conscience. It is the recognition of what God is accomplishing in that act. I am not saving myself by submitting to the waters of baptism. I'm doing the exact opposite. I am in humility submitting to the saving work of God. I am recognizing that I can't do what only God can do for me. And so go back to this story in John chapter 9 where Jesus is telling this man after he's made spit mud and put it on his eyes, go wash in the pool of Siloam. This man's not arguing with Jesus. He's not saying, well, why? What good would that do? I could go down to that pool any day and wash in that water. If the water in the pool of Siloam could cure me of blindness, there'd be no blindness because it's not that water. It's the act of obedience in response to him trusting that Jesus is able to do what no one else was able to do. And so this man goes and he washes. Now here's the other thing I want you to think about. The act of making mud with his spit. What in the world is that all about? And I think there's a few things to think about, but the one I want to point out to you this morning, I think the one that is clear from the context and in line with what Jesus has done before, is this. We've talked before about how the Pharisees had an oral law about what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. 
And if you broke any of these things, you were in fact breaking Sabbath. There were 39 laws recorded in their Mishnah regarding what you could not do on the Sabbath. One of those things that was prohibited was the act of kneading with a K. Not like kneading something, but kneading, like you would knead dough. So when you knead dough, what are you doing? You're taking the flour and you're taking water and you're mixing it together and you're actively working it to create a new substance. And that word that's used is a reference not just and only to the act of kneading dough to make bread, but any time, as the, the reference here on the screen talks about, any time you take particles and mix them with water in order to create a new substance. So Jesus is, in effect, kneading mud. He's taking saliva and he's taking dirt from the ground and he's doing what? He's kneading it and he's making mud. And I think that he's doing that on purpose because he knows that those looking at him with a critical eye are going to find fault in his behavior. He is working on the Sabbath. This was the Sabbath when Jesus finds this man and heals him. And so I think he's doing what he's done in other places. For example, if you remember back in John chapter 5, when he healed the man who was lame from birth, he didn't just heal him, but he told him to do what? You remember his instructions? Get up, take up your what? Bed and walk. The act of taking up your bed and moving it was breaking the Mishnah law regarding what you could not do on Sabbath. And I think he's doing the exact same thing all over again in this context. I think Jesus is being provocative on purpose. He wants to see how this man's going to react to his instruction, and he wants to see how his opponents are going to react to what he's doing on the Sabbath. Because this becomes a constant source of conflict. And as we're going to find out next week when we finish off this passage, that's exactly what happens. The Pharisees find fault in the fact that he broke Sabbath law. Well, what specifically did he do that was illegal? He needed. He made mud. And in so doing, broke the Sabbath law. I think this is all very intentional on Jesus' behalf. And so with all that in mind, tells this man to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. It says, so the man went and washed. And what does it say? He came home what? Seen. He came home seen. So in response to the question that John chapter 8 leaves us with, what hope is there? for those of us who are spiritually blind. We get this profound answer in John chapter 9. What can Jesus do with those who can't see? He can restore their sight. And what we're going to see next week as we continue this story is the profound change that takes place in the life of this man. Something interesting happens here in this story. Jesus disappears until the very end of John chapter 9. The story focuses in on this man, his reaction the way that he interacts with the Pharisees and what he has to say about the identity of Jesus. And it's all incredibly profound. And so I hope you'll join us next week as we continue John chapter 9 and we see what happens when Jesus changes someone's life. When you think about your own life and the way that Jesus opened your eyes. And how profoundly different the way you see the world around you is now in Christ from the way you saw it before Christ. What happens 
when Jesus changes your life? I hope you know the answer to that. And if not, let's find out next week together. With that, the lesson is yours. How can we serve you this morning? Perhaps you find yourself in a situation this morning where you're frustrated because you want desperately to see truth and to understand spiritual truths and you're having trouble recognizing them. We would love to have the opportunity to show you the beauty and the simplicity of Scripture and show you what God's will for your life is. Perhaps you're just in need and you don't know where to turn. We'd love to be able to serve you in any way that we might be able to. If you have a spiritual need this morning, please don't leave without letting us know what it is. One of the ways you can do that is by finding one of our shepherds uh, afterwards or myself. We'd be happy to serve you. But if you have a pressing need now and you want to react to it now, we're going to stand and we're going to sing a song. If we can do anything to serve you, please come forward. Let me know what it is as we stand and we sing this song. Let's stand and sing.